This is the word of God for the reading for the day. Mark chapter 4, often termed Jesus Calms the Storm. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the great cinematic masterpieces of our time was a film released in 1986 They got surprisingly average viewer responses on RottenTomatoes.com. In the film, three silent movie stars, uh, actors known as the Three Amigos, maybe you've heard of this excellent cinematic masterpiece, Lucky Day, Dusty Bottoms, Ned, Nederlander, they travel to a small Mexican town for what they think is a public appearance, right? I mean, they're just down there kind of whipping up interest and and being, uh, uh, being seen, Um, But partway through their stay, they realize that those who called them, this group of villagers who were under threat from a bandit and his gang, actually mistook them for their screen characters. Okay, They thought that in reality they were the people that they played on TV and that they weren't actors. They didn't know they were actors. They thought they were heroes. Uh, But the three amigos had no idea this was going on. So they float through life, they roll into town, thinking they are in one story, okay? A story where they get to enjoy a new country, try some new food, hang out with some pretty ladies, uh, make some money acting, okay? They're worried about things like whether the food is going to make them fat. Uh, Finally, though, they encounter El Guapo and his gang. I'm sure you remember the climactic scene in the movie. We can all go there, right? Uh, And... They, and they, they encounter this gang in the town square, and the amigos, they think that they are in the climactic scene of their live-action movie. So they're actually feeding the bandits lines that they're supposed to say to them, right? Tell us we will die like dogs. And the guy's like, what? He's like, okay, you're going to die like dogs. We will not. We'll fight like lions. Okay, so they're, they're acting out this scene in the middle of the town square. They're riding around, firing their guns, until what happens? until someone gets shot with a real bullet, okay? And then they call it off. They say, wait, 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 stop. You're doing this wrong. One of the guys walks up to the bandits. He says, hand me your gun. He looks at it. He says, this is a real bullet. You're in big trouble, mister. We're calling this whole thing off, okay? And then it dawns on him. And he smiles, and he slowly backs away from the bandits, and he huddles up with his buddies, and he says, this is real, okay? This is real. What am I doing here? I've been shot. There are real bullets in this town square. What are we going to do? And then they all start crying. They just start weeping, okay? Um, And one of them says, well, we're not going to get paid, that's for sure. See, this is what's going on. They realize, they had a moment of clarity 
that there was a new story, a much, much bigger story than they thought that they were in uh, came crashing into their lives. They thought they were in one story, a pretty small one where they're just sort of actors doing their thing. But the reality was they were dead center in a much larger story with much bigger stakes that involved far more than whether or not the food in Mexico was going to make them fat, okay? They thought they were in one story, but they were in a much, much larger one. Now, I'm not saying our lives are exactly like the lives of the three amigos, though I do think there are some strong similarities here. There's a sense in which we go through life, you and I go through life, And uh, we're consumed with our day-to-day concerns. And so much of what consumes our time and our prayers and our worries and that sort of white space we get when things finally slow down long enough for us to just be still and to think, that mental free space, what consumes all of that is sort of like the amigos going on their trip to Mexico. I mean, the relationships are real. Our experiences are real, our work is real, but we're living in a story that's much smaller. We think we're living in a story that's much smaller than we actually are. We actually live in a story that's more dramatic, more wide-reaching, more eternal, larger than we can imagine. This is real. This is real. Eternity is real. And real bullets are flying, yes, but a real hero also exists. The Gospel of Mark that we've been marching through uh, basically since the beginning of the year is a book about the bigger story. It's a book about perspective. Specifically, Mark wants to show us the amount of weight and the gravity and the glory of the central character, the hero of this bigger story, Jesus Christ. He's constantly asking us to consider this man, to take a closer look at him, to see if there's more here than you initially thought. Even if you've been to church your entire life, or if this is your first time through the walls, through the doors of a church building, is there more to Jesus, more importance, more power, more meaning, more reality than you've ever considered before? See, the gospel is an invitation into a bigger story, bigger conflict than we initially thought, more meaning and importance than we initially thought, but more eternity as well. And most of all, this bigger story is about encountering a single person who holds the story of our life together. And this is Mark's burden. His entire purpose in writing the gospel of Mark was to make us encounter and consider Jesus Christ. You can never plumb the depths of encountering Jesus in this story. We can never exhaust the question that is on the lips of the disciples in the story that we just read. Who then is this man? Who is Jesus? That's the central question in the book of Mark. And actually, that's the central question that makes sense of our lives. So in this short scene with Jesus on the lake, uh, I'm going to, well, I'm going to, Proposed that it actually reveals a bigger story than we actually think we're living in right now. It reveals the nature of our world. It reveals the nature of Jesus. And then finally, it shows us the true nature of what it looks like to follow him in this world. All right, So that's where we're heading this morning. All that from a little boat ride with Jesus on the lake. So let's jump in. What does this story reveal about our world? What kind of world are we really living in? And the answer is that we live in a world of storms, don't we? In this passage, Mark is 
telling, he's recounting a historical event. This thing really happened. Um, but he's also telling it in a way that paints a picture of our life, the human predicament, where we are, who we are, and where we live. So we need to sort of enter into the story to reveal its true message. In 1986, um, some archaeologists excavated from the mud on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, this very, uh, 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 the, the sea where this very event occurred, uh, a boat that was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet tall. It was from the very century that Jesus lived. So this is the kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples would have been in. It accommodated about 15 people. It had a small deck in the front and the back where someone could sit or lay down or apparently take a nap. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, which is wild because just 30 miles up the road, there's a mountain called Mount Hermon that's um, 20 or I'm sorry, 9,200 feet tall, okay? So top of Buttermilk Mountain down to sea level in only 30 miles. And so some of the weather systems in this region can get really extreme really fast. Um, it's, it's a small body of water. It's only eight miles across at its widest point, but it's been recorded, 12-foot waves have been recorded on this small lake, okay? So that what happens is the warm... I'm no weatherman. What am I talking about? But something about the warm, warm air and the cold air, and then it comes down, and boom, you got a big storm. Okay? And um, what is fascinating, though, for our purposes, is that the guys that Jesus was in the boat with, his disciples, I mean, some of them were professional fishermen. This is what they've been doing since they were four. Okay? They've been out on the boats with their parents on this lake. This was their home turf. And this was not their first rodeo. But on this particular day... During this particular storm, it got so bad that Mark tells us they thought they were going to die. They feared for their lives. In other words, this was no average storm. This was the storm of their lives. And as we enter into this story and hear it like the readers would have heard it in the first century, um, we also need to understand this, that one of the prevailing worldviews of the day was that the sea, the water, This lake, the ocean, was considered to be a force of chaos and evil and destruction in the world. So the sea, if you kind of read through the Bible or even read through ancient literature from this time, the sea is always this uncontrollable power, this dark force at work in the world. It's uncertain. It it brings evil. It symbolizes where darkness comes from. So... What Mark wants us to see is that this little boat in this huge storm filled with a group of disciples with Jesus taking a nap on the back deck of the boat while they fight for their lives in the storm of their lives is a little snapshot. It's a little picture of your world and my world. This is us. We're in this boat, okay? We're surrounded by forces we can't control. It's scary, Uh, We don't know where all the chaos is coming from. We're surrounded by a few people who we know we can trust, but there's not really a sense that we are in control or know what's going to happen next. In other words, the sea is raging all around us. There's something wrong with this world. Now, we all know this intuitively. There's something wrong here, 
okay? People have all kinds of explanations of what that is. I mean, the, the explanations of what's wrong with our world, they range all over the map. Poverty, education, politics, religion, secularism, whatever it is that people say is wrong with the world. You know the one opinion you and I never hear is that everything's just fine, right? I mean, have you ever had a conversation with someone and they kind of look around the world and they're like, yeah, yeah, no, we're, this is it. We're doing great. This is exactly how it's supposed to work. Nothing wrong here. Rolling along just fine. We've got it. No one says that. Everybody intuitively knows that there's a problem with our world. We live in a world of storms. Even though we disagree with what it is, we know something is broken and something's not right. We don't just know this theoretically, of course, though, these storms. The storms aren't just out there. Um, we know this experientially. Our life is filled with storms, okay? Uh, we, we know this through our bodies that get injured and get sick and don't work right. We know this through our relationships, which at the very same time can be such great sources of life and joy and happiness and deep sources of pain and rejection and uncertainty. We experience these storms every day. We know this through our own private fears and anxieties, the stuff that keeps us up at night and the stuff that floods into our minds in the morning like a train coming down the tracks and we see it coming and we just don't have the power to make it stop. And, though, and we see this through our own thoughts and our own actions. We, we might think our, of ourselves as good people. I'm sure most of us do. Um, but if we're honest, we can't really deny that there is something that's not just broken out there, but that there's something broken in here. We find ourselves doing things and saying things or thinking things that we would think, where, where did that come from? That's not me. That's not who I want to be. That's not the kind of person I want to be for my family or my friends. Um, where did that come from that's not good or true or beautiful? It's actually wrong. It's actually ugly. Why am I doing these things? We surprise ourselves sometimes with the storms that come out of our own heart. We feel this force at work in our lives that causes things to fall apart. We cause things to fall apart. We're both guilty of and victims of the evil, and the chaos in this world. Here's the point. We live in a world of storms, and like these disciples, we're afraid. What's going to happen? Where's this boat going? Is the next wave going to capsize us? What is the future? And so the question the disciples ask in the midst of one of the storms of their life makes a ton of sense to us, doesn't it? In verse 38, they look at Jesus, and they say, do you not even care that we're perishing. I mean, don't you care? We are suffering, we're hurting, we're being swamped. And right when we really need to feel the presence of God, right when we need to know that he's here and he's active and he's present and he's at work, we look around and it's he's asleep. He's not doing anything, right? He's just asleep. In the midst of a storm, it often feels like God is distant or even absent, uncaring. I mean, does he even exist? Jesus sleeps in the boat, and the first conclusion his disciples can come up with was he doesn't care about our well-being. He doesn't love us. Don't you care? Now, you could be here this morning, and you could resonate with that question a lot. Uh, I think a lot of us do. 
Maybe you look around the world, you look back on your life. Maybe you look at some of the storms you're currently in, the circumstances that feel like they're conspiring against you. And when life just doesn't seem to work right, and there's very little evidence that God is active here, we think, don't you care? What are you doing? Do you even exist? It's a totally fair question. And what I love about the Bible is the Bible actually asks that question for us, doesn't it? Like, this is not a a doubt or an objection to the existence of God that we all of a sudden came up with in the 20th century. This doubt is in the Bible. Jesus' followers had this doubt. Jesus' followers, through that accusation and that question at Jesus, Jesus is not afraid of your doubts or your accusations or your fears about him. He wants you to bring them to him. It's a fair question, but... Is God's absence the only possible interpretation of a sleeping Jesus in the back of a boat in the midst of a life of storms? This passage actually points to another answer. In what Jesus does next, he reveals who he is for us in a world of storms. He reveals his nature and he reveals his mission and it radically reorients the disciples' lives. What does this story reveal about Jesus It shows us he's the king of the storm. He's the Lord over all the storms and circumstances of our life. So just as Mark is using the boat on the sea to paint a word picture of who we are, where we live, what our life is like, he's also using this miracle to point to the identity and the mission of Jesus. This miracle reveals who Jesus is. See, just as it was a consensus that the sea was the source of chaos in the ancient world, it was also the consensus that no one had the power to control it except for God himself. So when Jesus stands up in the boat and rebukes the sea, can you imagine the nerve, right? Quiet. Zip it. You, be still. Sit in the corner. Um, When he talks to the water as if it was a child, uh, he is saying something about who he is. In fact, Tim Keller points out, this is not how you normally talk to a hurricane, okay? If a hurricane is whipping through your town, you don't calmly stand up and say, quiet, please. I'd like you to sit down. This is how you talk to a child. This is how you talk to a child. There's no incantations. There's no rolling up his sleeves. There's no magic formulas. He just calmly speaks to it, and it listens. Before anything existed in the world, God spoke a word and brought everything that exists into existence. Order was created out of chaos with this word, with this voice. Light was created out of darkness. Life was created out of nothingness with a single word. Of course the water listens to Jesus. It's heard that voice before, hasn't it? On the day it was born. In some ways, this lake, this chaotic world of circumstances that these men find themselves in, It was, it is God's child. It was born by the voice of God at the beginning of creation. This is a voice that only God has. Jesus is showing us that he speaks with the very authority of God, that he actually is God. In Colossians, Paul writes this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what Paul is pointing to is the bigger story of your life that Jesus is the hero of. 
All the circumstances that we can't control, Jesus holds those things together. All things hold together through the power of his word. He is the creator of the universe. But this display of raw power isn't just a display of raw power. He's not just saying, guys, check this out. Quiet, right? I mean, he's not like, you know, dudes hanging out, just showing off what he can do, you know, like, I can run a five-minute mile. What can you do? I can't. I'm just saying, like, Jesus is saying that. Um, he's not just showing off to his buddies, okay? He, there, there is a purpose behind this miracle beyond just showing us who he is and what he um, and, and the power he has, it actually shows us what he came to do. This miracle reveals his identity. This miracle also reveals his very mission in life. Um, as he calms the storm, he is giving a, a signpost of what his future kingdom will be like forever. Okay, this is, this is a hint, a down shadow of what Jesus has come to do in an ultimate and eternal way. In some ways, this is small potatoes. As much raw power as the disciples witnessed that day, Jesus isn't just here to calm the storm. He is here, uh, he's not here to calm the storm on that sea. Jesus came to calm the storm on every sea that has ever existed in the world. See, as the Bible Um, identifies the source of chaos as the sea, it tells us that that source of chaos and destruction in our life uh, is actually sin. Sin cuts across every human heart. It's infected every human institution and human venture in history. But it's important that we understand what sin is. I mean, sin, okay? Like when we hear the word sin outside of church, you know what it most commonly refers to? Dessert, right? I mean, this is like something is sinful. We're talking about how much chocolate and calories it has. So, sin, when we start talking about sin, we need to understand what the Bible means when it talks about sin. If we don't have a robust, full understanding of this concept, it just sounds trite. It just sounds quaint. Sin in the Bible is a rejection of God's good design for his entire creation. It's a rejection of God as God. It's a rebellion against the very one who made us and loves us and sustains us and continues to care for us. It's an act of denying our creator, of worshiping anything else besides the one who deserves our worship. Sin is the sea, the very source of chaos and evil in our world. The actual answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? is sin. Every other problem stems from this rebellion of God's good care for us. And yet, we read in the Bible that for our sakes, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's this saying? Jesus voluntarily entered into the power and the destruction of the sea, the chaos that we created. He took it on He took on the only storm that can actually sink you and me for eternity. On the cross, Jesus paid that penalty. He bore our debt. And as he took sin upon himself, he defeated its power that it has over us forever through his resurrection. And check this out. 
as we're entering the bigger story of the gospel that God is calling us into, how does this bigger story end? What happens to the sea as we follow that line, that, that trajectory through the rest of the Bible? Well, we've got to turn to the final pages of the Bible to see what actually happens to the sea, to the source of chaos, all those circumstances that are conspiring in this world for destruction. Revelation 4, we read that before God's throne, there was, as it were, a sea like glass, like crystal. Well, where have we seen that image before? In this very story we just read, yeah? Jesus, in a world of chaos and storms, with a word, turned that sea into a sea of glass, like crystal. In other words, the sea still exists. There's still problems in this world. There will always be problems in this world. But um, with Jesus Christ sitting on his throne as the resurrected king, that sea is still. It no longer has the power over us that it once did, to truly consume us, to truly destroy us. There is a sea, but it's calm. But the last image, the very final image we get in the book of Revelation is this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. See, it doesn't mean there's no water in heaven, okay? It doesn't mean there's no oceans, no beaches, no lakes. It doesn't mean there's no rivers to fish in. What it means is, not only has the power of sin and evil been removed, but the very presence of sin and evil will be removed for God's people one day. This is Jesus' eternal plan for his creation. He's defeated the power of sin. One day he will remove the very presence of sin. The sea will be no more. What Jesus did on the lake that day wasn't a random event. It foreshadowed what he would do on the cross. He would totally reconfigure our world, and he would take away the forces of destruction and sin. So, finally, what does this account reveal about being a follower of Jesus? So, we've seen that it it shows us we live in a world of storms, but that we follow a king who is the lord of the storms. What does it look like to follow him in this world where there's still a sea and it hasn't yet been removed? Well, two things that I'll briefly point out. One is that often, as we follow Jesus, we are actually called into more storms than we might otherwise enter. Okay? Now look, recall the disciples' initial assumption. Jesus was asleep in the storm of their lives, and they took this as evidence that God didn't care for them or love them, that he wasn't active and present and at work in their life. But what's the alternative interpretation? How else could we read the fact that Jesus was taking a nap while these guys were afraid they were going to die? Because he is resting so confidently in the sovereign plan and goodness of God that in the storm of their lives, Jesus could kick back without a care in the world and take a nap. Do you know that sometimes taking a nap and resting is one of the most um, countercultural and subversive ways to witness to the goodness of God in this world. As we're all churning along and, and working and trying to justify our existence and life is busy and crazy and chaotic and we're just trying to get a lot done, just to sit back and take a day off or take a long afternoon nap, how about that as a witness to God's sovereign good control that all things are in his hands, we don't have to make it all happen, We can let go once in a while and kick back because God is good 
and he's in control. Jesus trusted that his heavenly father had not abandoned him in this storm, but was always with him. And he sleeps like a baby. God does allow his people to go through storms. In fact, as Jesus' followers, um, the reason they are in this boat in the first place is because Jesus asked him to come with him. Look again back at verse 35. Jesus says to his followers, let's go across to the other side of the lake. See, going into that storm was Jesus' idea in the first place. Uh, The reason the disciples found themselves being swamped and convinced they would die is precisely because they were obeying and following Jesus, not because they had disobeyed him or got God's will wrong for their life somehow. So I just need to say this. If you have heard anywhere that following Jesus will always make your life easier or more comfortable or better or healthier uh, or smoother or victorious all the time in this life, I want to apologize, but you've been sold the wrong version of Christianity. That's not the way the Bible describes following Jesus. Jesus himself says, you're going to take up your cross and follow me. The cross was an instrument of suffering, okay? Jesus' disciples, all 12 of the guys that were closest to him in this world, all of them were martyred or exiled Um, for what they believed about Jesus. In fact, Peter, who is one of the disciples in this boat with Jesus on this day, went on to write this in 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What's he saying? The normal Christian life often involves following Jesus into storms that we would otherwise not have to go into. In many ways, the call of Jesus is is stepping into discomfort to be obedient to him, right? We're called to die to ourselves and voluntarily enter into the messiness of a broken world, a world of storms, for the sake of loving those around us, to give our time, our money, our energy in radical and generous ways, to initiate relationships, to show hospitality, even though it can be awkward and uncertain, and can reveal some of our own insecurities. To forgive others, sometimes at great cost to ourselves. We're called to put down our own rights to comfort and safety, put them on the back burner. And as we do, we're literally following Jesus, the one who did that for us, gave up his own rights, and entered the greatest storm of all on our behalf. Why in the world would we sign up for this? All right, to wrap up. Like, okay, life's already filled with a bunch of storms. Why sign up to follow Jesus knowing it's going to lead us into even more? Why follow him into the discomfort when he promises life in some ways will be harder following him than it will be not following him? I mean, what possible resources and reasons are in this story to justify that kind of sacrificial love? Because another result of following Jesus is that our fear of the storms of life are replaced by an even greater fear. Now think of the moment, right after the storm had been stilled, the moment of sheer relief that the disciples must have experienced. They thought they were going to die that day, and then one second later, they were on a calm sea, smooth as glass. Um, They would have danced a jig, right? I mean, they should have just got up and high-fived each other, right? Um, During the storm, they were afraid, and after the storm, what does it tell us? Were they overjoyed? No. Were they exuberant? No. It actually tells us they were more terrified after the storm was calmed 
than before when they thought they were going to die. Their fear increased after being saved from death. Why is that? Because they encountered the real Jesus. Okay, They encountered God himself in human form. This was not the Jesus they necessarily expected to meet. They were seized by a greater fear than they had been before because they encountered a greater power than they had ever known before in their life. They realized that they were sitting dead center in the middle of a story that was so much bigger than they possibly realized before they got into the boat that afternoon. Their fear of the storm was replaced by a greater fear of God. Why is this good news? Why is this good news? It just sounds like more fear to me, right? I had a little bit of fear earlier. Now I got a lot of fear. How is that good news? Here's why. This makes fearing God instead of fearing the storms makes all the difference in the world. It's true we do end up with more fear at the end of the day because there's more power in Jesus than any storm we will ever encounter. But that's exactly why it's such good news. The storm, these circumstances that consume so much of our life, these fears, these anxieties, they're, um, they're impersonal cold forces of chance and randomness, right? Storms don't love you. Storms don't know you. Storms are just happening. It might as well be you or someone else. It's irrelevant. They're chaotic and they're impersonal and they're cold. But Jesus Christ, the Lord over all of those circumstances, the Lord of the storm, um, is, is a personal, loving force of redemption and salvation at work in the world. And he is for you. He, it's not impersonal. It's not cold. It's not random. He knows you personally. And he loves you personally. I mean, this is real power in Jesus. We cannot be flippant about this. But at the same time, he, we know Jesus uses that very power to extend grace and hope and redemption where there was chaos and sin and brokenness. This is a power we can have a relationship with. This is a power that's a person. This is a power that calls us to enjoy him forever. To the degree that we fear God, we won't be afraid of anything else that life throws at us. The greater fear that God fills our hearts with actually frees us to be fearless in this world. Jesus asked his disciples, have you still no faith? This isn't accusatory. This isn't mean. He's saying to his followers, trust me. Trust the power that I have as the God of creation and the God of redemption. Trust my goodness. Trust I have your best interests in mind. I led you into this storm. Where you are right now in your life, God led you there. He's saying, do you really think I would abandon you there? Do you really think I would disappear when you need me the most? Have you still no faith? Fear me. Stand in awe of me. Care only what I think about you and stop fearing the storms of this world. Who then is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's the question, isn't it? Who is this guy? That's the central question of Mark. That's the central question of our lives. He's not a man we meet on our own terms. We've got to encounter the real, powerful Jesus. He doesn't fit easily into our preconceptions all the time, but he is good, and he is for you, and he is the Lord over all the circumstances you will ever encounter. He will bring peace to your life and peace to the storms of this world. Let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you um, for uh, what you did on the boat that day. Thanks for taking a nap and showing us what it looks like to rest in the goodness of God. Thanks for your powerful word that brings life and peace to even the most fearful storms that can consume our world. Jesus, help us trust you. Help us put faith in who you are and all you have done on our behalf. Grow our hearts. Grow our fear of you so that we don't have to be afraid of anything else. We ask this in your name. Amen.